I had one of those weeks when I was preparing this, this morning, uh, because I've got a free topic this morning. It's really hard, isn't it, when you're given a free topic to know what to preach on, and I sort of spent quite a bit of time just seeking God and, um, yeah, reading scripture and trying to, trying to find that thing that caught my heart that I felt God was laying on my heart, and um, it didn't actually really happen until about half past 11 last night, which is often sometimes how God works, isn't it? But, yeah. There is something that I feel that God has laid on my heart this morning. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be looking mostly at the book of Ezra. So you want to flick to the book of Ezra and just put your thumb in chapter 1. Um, this, this will be a mission because essentially there's 10 chapters in Ezra, but I don't propose we read them all. I'll uh, sort of dip in and out. A couple of weeks ago, um, Lou was leading Sunday morning, uh, hosting, and uh, I took Rue for a little walk just to kind of get her to sleep. We're at that stage of... Uh, uh, of needing to have a little bit of motion, you know, driving a car or a little walk with the, uh, the buggy to try and help Rue get to sleep, and that's where she is right now. And uh, I had my phone with me, as, and I walked out into the car park, and I thought, I'm going to read some scripture whilst I'm out here, because that seems like a useful use of my time. Um, and I picked the book of Ezra, because I smugly thought, if I can read all 10 chapters, I can say, I've read the whole book of the Bible today. Um, as I started to read, though, I began to feel God speak to me through the book of Ezra. Um, and I want to talk about that this morning, what God was showing me. And what I really felt this morning and what God was speaking to me there was revealing to me in the book of Ezra principles in how we can build ourselves up in God. How we can mature ourselves in our walk and obedience with him. And in the process, how we come to know him more, we know his faithfulness more. Somebody once taught me that all the stories in the Old Testament provide us with types and shadows. What that means is they provide us with examples, illustrations to help us to understand spiritual truths in the New Testament. As we look at Ezra, there's lots of little types and shadows in here, lots of little winks and nods and and hints towards the gospel and what God was planning to do through Jesus right down to to some of the names of the characters in the book of Ezra. And we're going to go through it um, chapter by chapter, and I'm going to pray see as we go the story, because I believe that the the story is really relevant today in helping us in times when we feel distant from God, maybe times when we've backslidden. And there's a whole spectrum when we think about backsliding. It could just be in small areas of our life, or it could be completely, that we've just walked away from God. And sometimes we do that subtly, unknowingly. It just kind of happens over time. We just lose sight of him or we, we, we lose focus on him due to circumstances or the people around us or particular sin or whatever it might be. It can be subtle, but if we don't check it, it can grow, can't it? And that backsliding can, can get bigger. And uh, I really felt that the principles that um, are in the book of Ezra help us to get back to that place with God where we desire to be and want to be. So why don't we start by giving a little bit of context as, what's ha- as to what's happening at this point in history in the book of Ezra. So about 70 years now, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, have been in exile uh, to the Babylonians. They've basically been thrown out of Jerusalem, they've destroyed the temple of God, and they are not allowed to, t- to come home. And in that period of time, they, uh, they, they kind of walked away from God, and the way that this happened was very subtly. They began to mix with the other nations. They began to marry the Bible says, pagan women. Uh, What that meant was that they began to marry women who didn't follow or honor God. They worshipped other gods, small case G, 
They worshipped idols. They followed practices that were ungodly. And so what happened is that they began to adopt those religions. They began to adopt those practices into their own lifestyle. So the people of Israel didn't just necessarily go into exile, but they also moved further and further away from God in that period of exile. But just before going into exile, God had prophesied that in 70 years, he would free them from exile. And this morning, we've been talking about the faithfulness of God. And so we pick up Ezra uh, in chapter 1 with God proving himself faithful. So there's a king called Cyrus, he's Persian, he overthrew the Babylonians. And right in chapter 1, it says that the Spirit of God stirred his heart and he made a proclamation that all of God's people would be allowed to go home and rebuild the temple of God. And he sent this decree out across the nations. So God proved himself faithful by stirring the heart of a king and releasing his people to come home. And what I want to look at this morning is that journey of when they got home to the rebuilding of the temple and picking out some key principles that I think are really beneficial for us, which God was speaking to me in the car park. We're going to start, obviously I've just mentioned chapter one already. Cyrus, he's come to power. He's been king for one year. And the Bible tells us that the spirit of God, the Lord, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of the kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of, he- God of heaven, has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you all of his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, beside the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Not only was it a proclamation to free God's people and allow them to return, it was a proclamation to give resource to the people so they could build the temple of God. Now, to the Jews, the temple of God was really important because for them, modelled on the tabernacle, it was a place where the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. It was the focus of their worship. And as they looked towards that temple, it also spoke to them of their identity individually and corporately as a nation, that they were the people of God. And the temple drew them to worship. The temple drew them to teaching. It was like the epicentre of their faith. So when it was destroyed, this was a massive issue for the Jewish nation. So to have the opportunity to come back and rebuild that temple would have sparked and reignited something in their hearts, that this was a call back to the centre of their faith, to God, to his presence amongst his people on the inside of that temple. So this was massive. For 70 years they didn't have this. And now they're given the opportunity. And so begins this huge journey in chapter 2, of, uh, of, and, it, and it goes through a list of people. I'm not going to read the list. It's quite exhaustive. But it's a list of people and family and tribe that start to come back to Jerusalem, and, and it numbers about 42,300 people returning to Jerusalem. I mean, that, that's a massive amount of people. And sometimes I think when we see those, you know, kind of dramatizations in, in films of massive groups of people, take, take the classic example of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. You see like 30, 40 people, and that's the big crowd. But it would have been like beyond countable. Massive. So here are these people coming back to Jerusalem, 
Jews who are desperate and longing to see their identity re-established in God through the building of the temple. Their corporate identity as a nation being re-established. And now we get to a point in the story where we see the pattern and the process of how they go about that. And what's really interesting is if we have a flick into chapter 3. Like, I don't know about you, I don't know where you would start if you were going to rebuild a temple. You were going to try and come back to God. I, I know for me, I, I kind of sometimes, if I've backslidden or walked away from God, there's that tendency to think, I need to clean my life up and get everything sorted and I need to be perfect before God will accept me. That thinking is out there, isn't it? That sometimes I've got to polish myself up before I'm acceptable to God. Here's a nation for 70 years that have been mixing with pagan nations and adopting their worship and adopting their practices. The amazing thing in chapter 3 is they didn't polish themselves up. They didn't purify themselves so they were acceptable to God. What the first call was, was to worship. That was the first thing that they did. Have a listen to this. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josedach. Interesting name. Does anybody know what the name Joshua means? Yeah, it's a derivative of the name Jesus. It's where we get the name Joshua from. And it means the Lord saves So here's this man who carries the name of the Lord saves. He comes forward and he rebuilds the altar of God, the altar of the God of Israel. Now the altar was situated in the outer courts of the temple and it was on this altar that they would offer burnt offerings to God and sacrifices for sin. And so what Yeshua does is he reinstitutes the burnt offerings, the processes of burnt offerings. Now, the burnt offering had like a dual purpose. One part of the burnt offering was that an animal would be laid and a priest or an individual would lay hands on it and they would impute sin upon that sacrificial animal and then it would be burnt, often left to burn overnight so that nothing was left the following morning. And this was a, a, um, uh, a declaration of the people of, we want to return to you, God. We want to turn away and repent of where we've been and we want to reconnect with you. We want to say sorry for where we've ended up and we're coming back to you. So they started off by getting their hearts aligned to him, recognising we've walked off. We've got involved with things we shouldn't have got involved with. And although they haven't sorted this out in their lives, although they haven't removed themselves from those nations and those marriages... They were here coming before God and wanting to reconnect with him. And the second aspect of the burnt offering was that as that smoke arose, there was an understanding that it would create a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That God would smell their offering and he would return to the people. He would overlook their sin. That this was a picture of worship and reconnecting with the Father of wanting to come and lay their lives before him and rededicate themselves to him and offer up sacrifices in worship. It's very similar, isn't it, to when we gather around the communion table, isn't it? We 
come and we begin to recognise that maybe there have been some things in my life that have gone a bit awry. Might be attitudes, might be things at work, might have got caught up in some gossip, might have done this, might have done that. And we know that. But we also know that God loves us and invites us to the table. So we come in recognition of the ultimate sacrifice that is Jesus. And we come and we say thank you, don't we, for his sacrifice on the cross. And to worship him and to exalt him in our lives again. And part of that exalting Jesus is recognizing, I need to sort some things. But the point and the first point of contact with him is relationship. And as we go on, the dealing with the stuff in life follows. So maybe you've strayed, maybe you've walked away, maybe you've backslidden, and maybe you've come to believe that you've got to get yourself sorted before God will accept you. Well, that's not true. He accepts you right now for who you are, no matter what's gone on in your, in your week, whatever's gone on in your month, how far you've walked away from him, it doesn't matter. He accepts you right now. He accepts you back into relationship with him through Jesus. And that's the first call. Come and reconnect with the Father. You know, sometimes when I'm in that place, what I do is I just stop. We can get caught up in doing things like, oh, I'm going to read my Bible to get God's attention, and then he might, you know, he might reveal himself or hear my prayer. Do you know what? That's just a work of dead faith. That is just me trying to manipulate God. Now, I'm not saying that reading your Bible is wrong, but to read your Bible with the motive of getting God to move is not the right motive. Well, I pray really hard and fervently to get God's attention. Again, it's a bit similar. The motivation should be relationship and connection, not trying to get God to move. We don't have to do those things. We just have to stop and know that he's God that he is king, that he loves us, that in Jesus we're acceptable. And that's the starting point. And it's interesting that they started with relationship with God before they laid the foundations of the temple, which is what happens in the next chapter. In the next chapter, sorry, at the end of chapter three, the people begin to lay the foundation of the temple. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and, the, and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. And from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, so Rubabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, love the names, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, the symbols, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. I wonder why they started with worship. I thought of 3 Corinthians. Sorry, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Really well-known passage. Mix up the numbers there that we all with an unveiled face 
are beholding in a mirror the image and the glory of our Lord. Being transformed into the same likeness from glory to glory. That what we behold, what we worship, shapes who we are. Why do they start with worship? Because by worshipping God, they behold him. And in that beholding of him, they realign themselves with his nature. They begin to reflect his nature. They become to come in line with his likeness, his passions. Worship's really powerful. Yes, it's about exalting God. But in that exalting God, we come to work out who we are in relationship to him. And we're transformed by that. So the process started with that point of relationship. And then the foundations of the temple were laid. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You know, in our lives, there is already a foundation that's been laid, and it's him. That's the foundation we come back to all the time. It's Jesus. When we have walked away, or we've strayed, or we've backslidden, we always have a foundation that we can come back to, that we can rely on, that's stable, that never shifts, that's always faithful, that never abandons us, never lets us go, and his name is Jesus. Every single one of us can come back to him, and we are accepted with compassion, and love, and grace, because he's paid for the mess. And he's laid himself down as a foundation where we can be restored. And Jesus, in the book of Matthew, after he'd given the Sermon on the Mount and he'd been teaching principles of character and conduct and things like that, says this, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. When we come back to Jesus and we reconnect with him and we start to listen to him again and sometimes going back to the gospels and rereading the gospels and hearing him speak to us is really important so that we can come back to aligning our lives with how Jesus teaches us to live because that's the foundation when we build our lives on him and his teaching, even if we've walked away and we come back to it, we begin to rebuild our lives on a solid foundation. The truth is, is if we've backslidden and we've walked away, I think all of us who've done that, and I've done that, I know that, I come to realize that any other foundation in my life that is not, a, is not of him is shaky, it does not last, it's not sure-footed, and it creates in me a longing to want to come back to him the foundation in my life. I haven't got time to go through these, but in Hebrews 6, Paul lays out six foundational doctrines to build our life upon. So I encourage you in your own time to go to to Hebrews 6 and have a look at them. For example, repentance is one of them. Uh, Turning away from dead works, following the law to try and earn salvation. Um, Just two to whet your appetite. Go and have a look. Go and read them. He says that once we've got those laid in our lives, we can then move on to the bigger things. The bigger parts of the building. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I've had experiences in my life that when I've started to try and rebuild things, or I've started to come back to God, and I've started to push into him more, I often experience a degree of resistance. Has anybody noticed that when you're pushing into him and you begin to grow and you can feel that something might happen or a person might come into your life or a circumstance comes along and you feel resistance and the result of that resistance makes you feel like you want to back away a little bit from the progress you're making. Has anybody experienced that? Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Kane. Good. Um, I have. I know that. When I start to reconnect with God and I start to push through and I, and I experience breakthroughs in my life, spiritual breakthroughs, sometimes there's a resistance that comes against me. Where does that come from ultimately? It comes from the enemy. It comes from Satan. You know, he's got a job title, which is to steal, kill, and destroy in comparison to Jesus who came that we may, have, we may have life and life in abundance. See, when we start pushing into that abundant life that Jesus has for us, and we start to build our life on him, and we start to put and build his word into our life and follow it, and we start to experience breakthroughs, we start to experience growth and maturity in our walk with God, the enemy does not like it. He wants to come and put us right back where we started. He comes and he creates resistance Jesus wasn't immune to it. He experienced it right after his baptism. You know, he had a, a, a huge encounter with God at his baptism. You know, the, the, it said that the, the, the clouds parted. That word actually means ripped open. It was impressive. I don't know what that looked like, but I'm sure it was quite impressive to the people who stood there who were watching the baptism. And then the Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove, and then a voice from heaven boomed out saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, that's a breakthrough moment and an encounter with God right there, hey? What happens straight after is that Jesus is then led into a wilderness, into a desert place. And in that desert place, the enemy comes to try and steal, kill, and destroy that which Jesus has just experienced. What does he start with? If you are the son of God, he directly attacks the very thing that God had just established in his life. If you are the son of God. How does Jesus deal with it? He clings to the word of God. He puts the enemy back in his place by saying, God said See, Satan was using the same tactic he used in the garden. Did God really say? To get us to question whether what we're experiencing about God, what we've heard from him, is really from him? And he twists the truth slightly enough, like he drops the word beloved when he approaches Jesus, if you are the beloved son of God. Because if, we can, if, we, if he causes us to forget that we're beloved, it's easier to lead us away. Yet God calls us beloved so we can remain strong in him. So what happens in chapter 4 is a group of people can see that the temple is being rebuilt and they don't like it. They come to steal, kill and destroy the progress. And what they do is they write a letter to, to the king and they make accusation against the people. And this is the accusations that they make broken down. They're rebuilding a rebellious and evil city. That's the first thing they say. Then they say they will rob the king by not paying taxes. They won't give you due honor. They won't exalt you, king. And that the king would lose his influence and rule 
beyond the city if they rebuild it. So they come to try and create resistance to stop the building of the temple. And the people begin to worry. But what the Bible tells us is that God brings forward two prophets. Haggai is one of them. Let me quickly click over and see if I can find the other. Zechariah. And you can read their prophecies at the end of the Old Testament. So what does God do at that time? He comes and he brings his word at a time of resistance to encourage the people. And the people are obedient to that word. They cling to what God has said and they don't look at the resistance and the source of that resistance, but they look to God. So in those times when you are reconnecting or building your life in him or pushing through in an area and you feel resistance coming against you, cling to what God has said. His word is higher than the enemy's word. His truth is the greater reality in your life. It's why we're given the armor of God, that we can stand firm. So God speaks to the people through the prophets to keep building, to stand their ground, to be firm, and he'll take care of the rest. And to pray see the story without going into too much detail, God does exactly that. And the building continues. James 4, verse 7, says this. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In those times when there's resistance, all we need to do is not fight the enemy. Just submit to God. Resist the enemy in that submission. God, you are God. I'm submitting to you. I'm submitting to the process I'm going through. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your word. It may not feel comfortable. It may not look like anything's happening as we've just sung. Even when I don't see it, you're working, God. I'm trusting in you. And what eventually happens is the enemy gets no ground in your life and he goes and tries it on with somebody else. He moves on. And you win a victory. And you push through. And you continue to build. And then... We're going to flick to Ezra, and I'm going to pray see chapter 7 to 10, because there's a lot going on in those chapters. But I've summarized it with this. And this is where Ezra arrives as well, beginning of chapter 7. To, to paraphrase the whole three chapters, it's all about putting things in order according to his word. So we've worshipped. We've come back to the foundation. Now there's time to build and deal with the bigger stuff. So chapter 7, Ezra arrives, and when he does, it says in chapter 7 that he prepares his heart and dedicates himself to understand the law and to do it, and also to teach his principles and the requirements to the people. So he comes to that place where the foundations are laid, the people are reconnected to the Father. Now I want to understand the law. Now I want to understand the bigger things. I want to go beyond the foundational doctrines and I want to move into the big stuff. I want to learn from your word. I want to understand it in my heart to that point where I'm also able to help other people walk in those ordinances, to walk in that law. For us, as New Testament believers, that's studying the word of God. Understanding the promises of God that are yes and amen and sowing them into our life learning how to deal with the issues in our character, beginning to recognize those things that don't line up with the truth of who we are in God and dealing with those things. 
recognizing those areas of sin that are holding us back as we compare ourselves to him through his word and dealing with them. Dedicating ourselves, like Ezra did, to study God's word and putting it into practice. As it says in James 1, be doers of the word, not just hearers, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So we have to continue to press into the word of God all the time. Because in it, it's revealed who we are in him. And we build that into our lives. We begin to establish the outer walls, the roof, the capstones, the bigger bits. And we build ourselves up. And part of this meant for the nation of Israel, they had to deal with an issue, which is that they had entangled themselves with foreign nations. Some people have taken this part of the passage to, to kind of use it as a, as, a, as a reason to teach that you can't marry other nations, and that's not what this chapter is about at all. What this chapter is about, sorry, chapters 10, it was about removing from their midst those things that had pulled them away from God. Chucking them out so they could be fully focused on him. I've got an illustration from my life. Uh, when I became a Christian, I was 14. Before that, I was quite into things like the X-Files. Remember the X-Files? Mully and Skolder, great TV show. Still, still watch it on occasions and realize how cheesy it was for, for good old 90s TV. Um, but because of that, I got quite into that whole UFO thing. Um, and that led me into some other occultish type things. So I started to practice runestones, uh, which was a form of divination, which was against God. I didn't know that at the age of 13, 14. It was just something fun to do. I just thought it was ex- you know, experimental. Then I became a Christian. And I had like, these little statuettes of grey aliens in my bedroom. And I-, I did this thing where I had like a little pouch, a velvet pouch of runestones in. And I had to sleep those under my pillow because that channeled the energy and all this kind of rubbish. Um, you know, it's all, it's all dark. It's all demonic. As a 14-year-old kid, I had no idea. I was just dabbling in stuff. Um, but after I became a Christian, it must have been maybe a year in, I was at Soul Survivor, and I remember God speaking to me, and I went home with this real urge in my heart that I had to get rid of all that stuff. I didn't know why. At that time, I didn't understand it, but there was just like this mm, on the inside of me that I had to get rid of it. So I purged my bedroom. I tore down that classic... Uh, the Truth is Out There poster that was uh, on Mulder's wall in his office. And I took all these little statuettes and I threw them in a big rubbish bag and I got those runestones and I threw them in a rubbish bag and I chucked the whole lot out. I literally removed all those things from my bedroom. I didn't understand it at the time. Why? But then as I did that and as I threw those things out, God began to speak to me that what I was doing was I was removing those things that were preventing me from following after him more fully. Those things that were not of him, that brought confusion, that kept me linked to things that were not of him. And I had to repent of those things and say sorry. And in the same way here, that's what Ezra was commanding the people to do as he studied God's word. He came to recognize that they had to be set apart as a people, as a nation. And therefore, they had to divorce the foreign wives that they had. They had to remove that element from their nation. And it wasn't about marrying foreign wives. It was about removing the influence of the enemy that had drawn them away from the father. And that's when maturity really hits the road. The rubber hits the tarmac, if you like. 
Because that can be hard sometimes. That might mean letting go of things you've clung to for a long time for comfort rather than God. But in that process, we come to know him as our faithful God. Where are you today in your walk with him? Are there areas where you've walked away from him? You've backslidden slightly? Is there a sin issue that you've not dealt with? Or are you just hungry to be in a deeper relationship with him and you've not understood how to get there? Where are you? I want to summarize those points for you to help point you in the right direction. Back into relationship with him, first and foremost. Lord, I want to know you and I'm coming to you. Two, come back to Jesus and his teaching, the foundation of your faith. Maybe you've got to go back there and revisit that. Maybe you need to reconnect with him. Maybe you need to re-go over his teachings to get them on the inside of you again. To know who you are in relationship to him and know who he is in your life. Then stand firm. If you experience resistance, stand firm. Hold on to Jesus. Cling on to his word. Don't waver. Submit to God in the process. And then get into his word. Study it. Go beyond Jesus' teaching. Get into the Old Testament. Get into the other books of the New Testament. Really study. Really look for the principles of faith. To divide scripture appropriately is the phrase scripture uses so that you can apply it to your life. And do it. And remove from your life. It's interesting, this was the last bit. Remove from your life those things that have drawn you away in the first place. It's interesting that the whole process starts with building your strength and confidence in God so that you feel the strength and confidence to ditch the stuff that's held you back in the past. It's because God is good.